Well, good morning to everybody who's here this morning. It's so great that you're here, and welcome to those of you who are joining us online. For any of you who don't know me, I'm Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and I'm so glad that you could be with us today. We have started a new series. We started it just last week called The Unknown, and we're talking about some people in the Bible who aren't very well known, and today we're taking a little bit of a different tack. Today we're talking about, well, Spoiler alert, let's not jump there. Let's, let's pray and we'll get into our scripture for today and uh, I'm excited about what God has for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to gather together with your people in your house. Thank you for the rain. We pray for our farmers and our crops this year that uh, this would be, this would be a, a wildly productive year. We pray for our country. We pray for peace around the world, Lord. We thank you that we could gather in your name. Amen. So let's read together. If you've brought a Bible with you, I would invite you to turn in it. We're going to be in the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Acts verse, chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, who them is isn't important to this story, He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus And the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The story of Paul at the Areopagus is a beloved story, and there's so much that we could discuss from this story. First, we could talk about how significant this has been just in the naming of churches. Now, the name Areopagus is not one that we see much because it's a compound word and we wouldn't use something like that. It means the hill of Ares, who is the Greek god of war. As the Romans became dominant and popularized their renamed version of the Greek pantheon, the place became widely known by the name of the equivalent Roman god, Mars, Mars Hill. Until recently, we had a church in Winnipeg called Mars Hill Church. It was at 1400 Pembina Highway, and their building is now occupied by a great church called Anchor Point. There is also a megachurch in Seattle by the same name of Mars Hill, though that church has since dissolved. But church naming is not what we're talking about today. Or maybe we could talk about Paul's message. We could talk about his use of apologetics, how this is a story in, when someone asks, has anyone ever become a Christian because of an argument? Well, this story right here, this, and in fact, this isn't the only story, but this is a great example. Paul's MO seemed to be that he would go to the synagogues and the markets and argue for Jesus. That would be interesting. Or we could talk about Paul's use of pop culture references in order to appeal to his audience and help them to understand what it is that he's saying. Paul makes two quotes in verse 28. First, he quotes a man named Epimenides, a philosopher from Crete, who says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes Aratus, another Greek philosopher, this one who's from the Stoic school, and he lived in the region of Cilicia. Interesting tidbit for you, Cilicia is the region that Paul was from. That's where Paul of Tarsus, Tarsus was in the region of Cilicia. Paul quotes both of these Greek philosophers who, in all honesty, like they're talking about Zeus, not Yahweh, but he uses their ideas to make way for the gospel. No different than pastors today quoting movies to help appeal to a broader cultural concept. That would be really interesting to dive into, but that's not what we're talking about today either. Today, we are talking about the unknown God. And that's an interesting statement. There's a fine line that has to be walked on this question. Can we know God? On the one hand, yes. God has revealed himself to us, and especially, he has revealed himself through his Son, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. We have a Bible which records many of the things that God has told us about himself, and those things are true. We can stand on those. And at the same time, I'm hesitant to say that God can be known. Or let me put it this way. In this life, as we are now, I believe that we are unable to know God as he truly is. 
which doesn't mean that the things that we do know about him, it doesn't mean those things aren't true. Think of, think of it like this. If you took a fishbowl and you dunked it in a lake and then you pulled it out, you can learn a lot of things. You can see what the water is like. Maybe you picked up some plants and you can learn about the lake by what plants live in it. Maybe you picked up a little fish or two. Now, nothing that you've learned about the lake by looking at the bowl is wrong. In fact, we can say it's stronger than that. Everything that you've learned by looking at the bowl is true. But it's not like the full truth of the lake. You can't capture the fullness of the lake in the fishbowl. Or another example, if you have kids, think about that relationship. My kids know some things about me. They know for them. They know my care for them. And even though there's lots about me that they don't know, nothing will ever, nothing that they ever learn about me will change that I love them and that I care for them. Those things that they know about me are true even though their vision or their understanding of me isn't complete. That unknown and the confidence lives in tension. Our relationship with God is like that. We are children. We are holding a bowl full of lake water. Everything that we know about God, we can be confident because he is the one who has revealed it. But also, we must be cautious not to act as though we have the full picture. As John says of Jesus' deeds in the last verse of his gospel, Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. The Bible is our record, but even the Bible cannot contain everything that Jesus said and did. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And this is my first point for today. God is unknown. In theology, we often describe God as holy other. And it's important to see how that word is spelled. It's W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y, though that would probably be appropriate also. God is holy other. And by this we mean that God is not a human plus. He's not a being like us in the sense that we can basically ascribe our thoughts and feelings and patterns to him as long as we add the appropriate omni-statements. God is wholly other. He is completely different. We are created in his image, but we are not the same sort of being as he. There will never come a time in human development, either in this life or in eternity, when any human will achieve anything like equality with God. Caveat? Christ already had equality with God before he became human, and that equality isn't something that he achieved. So even Jesus isn't an exception to that statement. All of this means that we cannot put God in a box. We cannot expect God to act in ways that we understand. We cannot demand things of God. We know that God is faithful and true, and we know that he cannot lie, and we know that he loves us desperately. 
But in terms of specifics, we must be very careful about making predictive statements about God's actions. The verse that comes to mind immediately for me on this topic is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For, your th- for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Bible makes several other statements to this effect, though it uses the phrase, God is not a man, to describe his otherness. A few are Numbers 23.19, 1 Samuel 15.29, and Hosea 11.9. Specifically, in these passages, the Bible is making the point that God does not change his mind and is not at the whim of his emotions the way that humans are. But it is highlighting that God is a different category of being and that we must not treat him or think of him as we would a human ruler. God is not a man. He is not like us. We are in some ways like him, but not in the sense that we can therefore understand and predict him. He is unknown. Which brings us to our second point. God works in ways we don't understand. This certainly shows up in that Isaiah verse. My ways are higher than your ways. This has been popularized in the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. For one thing, God is able to do things that we can't explain. Tell me, do you believe that prayer works? Few of you do. That's good. I do. I've seen answered prayer. I've seen people healed, like miraculous healings. I've seen hearts and minds changed and called back to Him, which is less on the miracle scale, but is still pretty astounding. How? How does God do any of that? How does the Holy Spirit call the sinner to repentance? How does the Spirit draw God's people together for worship? How does God shape us more and more into the image of his son and make us a light to the world? Eh? Truly, God works in mysterious ways. We believe that the Holy Spirit goes before us into situations and circumstances to prepare the way for the gospel. It's why we pray over missionaries and over church services. It's why we pray at the start of this message Because we believe that he is going before us and we want to walk in the path that he has laid. Think of all the missionaries who have gone into strange lands and found them not only ready, but hungry for the gospel. How has God laid that foundation? How has God laid that path? Perhaps as an illustration, let me tell you the backstory to Paul at Mars Hill in Acts 17. This story comes to us from a Greek writer. He was named Diogenes Laertius, which I've almost certainly mispronounced. He lived some 200 years after Jesus. He was not a Christian, so far as any sources can tell, but he set out to write a history and a biography of many of the important Greek philosophers. He relates a story from 700 years prior, so about 500 BC, when the Athenians were at war with the Spartans. The city of Athens was under siege and was experiencing a devastating plague. Nothing that they did could stop it. They wore masks, they social distanced, and still wave after wave after 
Wait, I think I'm getting my plagues mixed up. The Athenians, as many people of the ancient world, assumed that the plague was the result of the displeasure of one of their gods. And they were an especially cosmopolitan people, finding it fashionable to honor all sorts of gods from all sorts of places. So as you might imagine, they went absolutely nuts trying to sacrifice and appease all of these gods. And yet, the plague continued. Rich and poor, slave or free, the plague made no distinction. Finally, they sent for a wise man from Crete named Epimenides, who told them that it was not any of these gods, but one that they didn't know who needed to be appeased. And so they made sacrifice to this unknown god, and sure enough, the plague stopped. And so in Athens, there were altars to an unknown god. You may recall that Epimenides, the Cretan soothsayer who brought the unknown god to Athens, was one of the Greek writers that Paul quoted in his Mars Hill address. Is it possible that Epimenides had some vague knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Yahweh was, in fact, the God to whom the Athenians sacrificed? Yeah, it's possible. Is that the case? I have no idea. I, I don't know. In, I would say that no one but God can answer that. But what we do know is that when Paul came to Athens with the gospel, somehow... God had made a way for him to preach the, gospel, the good news, and some of the people there believed. Somehow, Epimenides deduced that God must be good and great and compassionate. So too today, there are people all over the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, and yet they are hungry and they know it. Somehow, God is at work in ways that we don't understand. This is essentially God's answer to Job. When Job calls out to God and goes, what are you doing? God says, how many worlds have you made? How many stars can you hold in the palm of your hand? God is highlighting, maybe more so with a bolt of lightning than with a marker, the essential difference between himself and Job. Job is frustrated, Job is hurting, and God's response is that you don't actually have any idea what's going on about what I'm doing or about what I'm about to accomplish. And that's our third point today. Our unknown God who works in ways that we don't understand accomplishes things that we could never imagine. It's fun to imagine. The internet is full of interesting discussions and guesses of what might happen in the next episode or season or show of whatever your favorite series is. Anyone like Marvel movies? Superheroes? Anyone? Yes, good, lots. Last year, Marvel created an animated series called What If? And it explored the Marvel universe if certain small things had happened differently. It was fun. And this is fun for Christians too. Have you ever heard of the Left Behind books? Those novels are an imagining of what the end of days would be like. Now, I happen to think that they're based on a faulty, literalistic reading of an apocalyptic literature, but they're fun. 
And there's nothing wrong with that, and especially not fun that calls us toward God. God's work, God's salvation, is beyond anything that his people had imagined that he would do. Think about the resistance that Jesus met. They were expecting a conqueror on a tall horse who would smash the Romans. Jesus did not smash the Romans. But Jesus smashed Satan. They were expecting Messiah to free them from oppression. Jesus freed us from sin. Nobody saw this coming. In fact, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you can remember all the way back to January. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 10, we read, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Satan didn't see this coming. And we can't even conceive that of what God still has in store for us. Paul speaks again of this great work of salvation as a mystery in Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 to 27, where he says, I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is far beyond anything that we could have imagined or anything that we could have hoped for, that Jesus would save us from those things which most deeply afflict us, and not only that, but that he would make a way for God to indwell us and live with us each day, truly, that's beyond. We serve an unknown God, and that is good news. We don't get to put him in a box or have rigid expectations of him, but it means that he is working in ways that we don't understand, and at the end of the day, he accomplishes things that we could never imagine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Paul at Mars Hill. Thank you for the wisdom that it imparts to us. And Lord, help us to not take you for granted. Help us to recognize your greatness, that you are not one of us, that you are not like us, that we don't get to speak to you as if you were. Help us to remember that as we go about our lives. Help us to honor you as we live for you, Lord, as we love the people around us, as your spirit goes before us. We pray that you would continue to accomplish incredible things in our world. In your name we pray. Amen.